Thank you, Olivia, for your ministry and music. If you could t turn with me to the scripture uh, passage we're going to be looking at this morning, uh, it can be found in 2 Kings chapter 5. 2 Kings chapter 5, and I'm not going to be reading through the whole thing um, right off the bat. We're going to just kind of take it section by section, but it would be great if you could follow along. I'm sure it would help you out if you could follow along as we look at this passage together. Again, it's 2 Kings chapter 5. So before we look at this passage in depth this morning, I'd like you to think about and reflect on just one question, what your answer would be to one question this morning. That question is, how often do you acknowledge God in your life? How often do you acknowledge God in your life? Think of all the activities that you partake in in your everyday life, maybe when you're by yourself or you're in private. Are you aware of God's presence within your own life? Kids, when you go to school, or maybe young adults, when you're in college, is God on your mind? Adults, when you're at work, maybe you're just with friends, do you speak, a God, speak about God or uh, speak, yeah, speak about God to your coworkers? Do you share God with your coworkers or your friends? Even here at church, when you're serving in a ministry, do you seek to give God the credit for how he is working through you? So how often do you acknowledge God in your life? So this morning, as I said, we're going to be looking at 2 Kings chapter 5. And this story presents to us many characters. Some of these characters, I would say, are unfamiliar to us. They might be only mentioned in the scriptures just one or two times. But other characters in it can be found all throughout maybe First and 2 Kings. So this story is loaded with characters, and there's two things I want us, before we begin this passage, I want us to pay attention to. The first, pay attention to how God is involved and how he is at work in this story. So that's the first thing. And then secondly, pay attention to how the characters relate to God. These two things will teach us a lot about what I believe the author is trying to get through to us from this story. So first, pay attention to God, and second, pay attention to how these characters relate to God. So look with me at 2 Kings chapter 5, and we will begin in verse 1. Verse 1 says, Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. So we are introduced to what I'd say is the main character all throughout the story. This man is Naaman, and interestingly enough, he is not part of God's people. He is not part of the Israelite nation, but we are told he is a Syrian. This is a past enemy of the Israelites, and if we go further in the book of 2 Kings, we'd see it's a future enemy as well. So this man is from the nation of Syria. So we might ask the question, why would the author of 2 Kings, who's primarily writing about the Israelites, why would he write about another nation, a non-Israelite, Naaman the Syrian? I believe we'll find out this reasoning as we move further in this story. But verse 1, it, it describes Naaman in this way, as a very high man in the society of Syria. 
He is a commander of the king's army. He was a great man with his master, and he was looked highly upon by the king of Syria. He was a man with might and strength. As it says, he was a mighty man of valor. We are dealing with a man with power, with authority, no normal man in the Syrian society, but one of the top men in charge. And as I said before, we are told that he is looked upon by the king with much favor. But don't miss the reason why Naaman had favor with the king and why he had victory. Certainly it was because of his abilities and his leading abilities, but where did that come from? Look with me um, again at verse 1. It says, Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. So it was not all by Naaman's abilities, not all by his strength and his might, but we see that God had given him the victory that he had had. He had certainly given him the ability to lead, to guide, and to fight. God was working through a non-Israelite nation. He is giving them victory, and that may surprise us, I would say, that God is working in someone not, that is not part of his people. All right? He's working in the nation of Syria, which was not his chosen people, Israel was. So why would he be interacting with or involved in the Syrian society? Well, I'd say it shouldn't be surprising to us as we see kind of all throughout the book of 1 Kings and 2 Kings, and really we see it all throughout the Bible, that God is at work in other nations as well. Not as his chosen people, but he is active in their society. For example, in 1 Kings 19.15, we see that he used his prophet Elijah to anoint the next king of Syria, which his name was Haziel. And also in 2 Kings 13.3, we see how God used Syria as a punishment for Israel's idolatry. So God working through this non-Israelite nation shouldn't be much of a surprise to us. And lastly, with verse 1, among this description of Naaman as this great man, or this man who is in charge with much power, we're given an important detail at the end of it. The author writes, but he was a leper. A man with such great ability and power had a disease that we know from Israel was looked at as an uncleanness, as a time of isolation. The disease of leprosy was not Without, with not going into too much detail about it, it was simply a skin disease. All right? This disease could cover the whole body, this disease of leprosy. But we know from Leviticus that God spells out, spells out many laws for the people of Israel. Due to this uncleanness, they had to be isolated from all other people, maybe spending time with other lepers, but they could not be in contact with other people. So we may wonder, why would Naaman, as we'll see in our story, he's able to kind of interact with other people and things. Well, there might be two reasons uh, that we could say why a leper is able to interact with other people. First, it's from the Syrian society. So he's not part of the Israelite. Uh, he's not under their commandments and their laws. So the Syrians may have not had any problem with naming a leper interacting with others. And then secondly, uh, maybe the severity wasn't too bad. All right? Maybe he didn't have leprosy as bad as some other ones that God was specifically talking about in Leviticus. So we see Naaman is a leper among all these great attributes that he has. So this statement of Naaman's leprosy leads into the conflict of the story. There is a problem at hand and he seeks for the solution. 
So look with me at verses 2 through 3, and this furthers this solution to this conflict of Naaman's leprosy. Verse 2 says, Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria? He would cure him of his leprosy. So the author introduces to us a new character. Only mentioned in this verse, but I would say she is very important. She is an ex-Israelite. She was captured and is serving Naaman's wife. Somehow, this little girl is aware of the prophet in Israel and tells Naaman's wife that he could heal him. A prophet, if you're not, not sure or familiar with what a prophet is, a prophet is simply one who speaks for God. Sometimes prophets did miracles and there was false and true or real prophets of God. Interesting, interestingly enough, we know from the lack of recording and then also as Jesus says um, in the book of Luke that there was never a leper healed in all of Israel. In Luke 4.27 it says, And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. So this is talking about the Naaman that we're dealing with in 2 Kings. But it's so interesting that no leper had ever been healed in Israel, but this girl has trusts, has trust, and also believes that this prophet, most likely looking to God, would be able to heal a leper, even though she had never seen leprosy healed. So this little girl obviously believes that this prophet, and even more so the God from whom this prophet speaks, is so powerful as to be able to heal someone of their leprosy. A point I haven't mentioned yet is that I had mentioned how there is many characters in this story. We've already seen two of them. But an interesting thing that I believe the author of 2 Kings is doing is he presents us several contrasts in this story. And we're shown the first one here. The first contrast that, we've see, that we see between the characters and kind of progress and emphasize the story and its points along, we have the first in this little girl. We have Naaman in this situation where he is diseased. And of all people, a little captured servant girl is able to help him. Naaman, he's a commander, he's leading armies, he's very high in the society of Syria. And this little girl who was captured was a servant and was obviously young, is able to help Naaman. We see Naaman's lack of knowledge of such a prophet and even such a god, while this girl is aware of both and trusts that they can help. So Naaman trusts this little girl and moves towards this solution as we see in verses 4 through 7. So look with me there. In verse 4 it says, So Naaman went in and told his lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, when this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure and cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. 
So Naaman, he takes the solution that this little girl gives and he brings it to his king. And as we said already, the king looked with favor on Naaman. All right? So he was already in a good relationship with this king. So he brings uh, this news, this solution for his leprosy to the king, and the king gives him a letter so that he could get permission from the king of Israel to get help, to get healing for his leprosy. Interestingly, you may have picked this up, we're not given the king's name of Syria, and also, as we'll see later on, the king of Israel's name either. It's mentioned, the, men, the names of the kings are mentioned many times in 1 Kings and 2 Kings, the king at the specific time, but here in our story, we're not given their names, and I think that is done on purpose. I think it's done on purpose for the reason that the, the story isn't trying to maybe highlight these kings, but it's trying to highlight the other characters. So I think we do good not to focus too much in on these kings at the time and just see him as a story unfolds. But we can see the king of Syria, it was most likely a man by the name of Ben-Hadad. And the king of Israel at the time, his name was, he kind of went by two names, Jehoram or Jotham. So Naaman brings the letter and these costly gifts to the king of Israel. And he reads the letter, and the king of Israel reads the letter all wrong. He believes that the king of Syria is asking him to heal him, and the king of Israel has enough sense to realize, I'm not God. I cannot heal anyone. So he believes that the king of Syria is trying to have war with him, to have an excuse to fight against the Israelites. So this was not, as we have seen, as we've read this story, we see that this was certainly not the king of Syria's intentions at all. We see that he heard about this prophet from the little girl, and Naaman, he told him about this prophet. So we see that the king certainly had in mind the prophet, and may have just thought that the prophet had a better relationship with the king at the time. So this shows that the king of Israel had a lack of knowledge, or he did not acknowledge God. And we kind of see another contrast between the characters come up here, between the little girl and the king. The prophet of God was the first thing to the mind of the little girl, but the prophet of God, and maybe God himself, did not come up into the mind of the king of Israel. Finally, the prophet of God comes onto the scene, as we see in verses 8 through 14. So look, look with me there. In verse 8, it starts out and says, But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hands over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farfar the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh 
of a little child, and he was clean. So the news of the king being upset spread as we see this prophet, Elisha, hears about it. The king was probably very upset, thinking that the king of Syria was being very deceitful, so it spread, and certainly he may have been spreading news that war would be coming soon. So Elisha hears about it, and he comes to the king, and he takes this responsibility on himself. And he says specifically the reason why. He says that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. Several questions might come to our head. First off, is is Elisha seeking to make a name for himself? Is he seeking to show his power? Is he hoping that his name is going to be made great through this miracle? Well, I'd submit to you that I don't believe this is what he is doing, and we will see very soon what Elisha is seeking to do, which is the complete opposite. Verse 9 carries on and says that Naaman was sent to the house of Elisha, but what Elisha does is a little baffling to us. He doesn't come out to Naaman, this great commander, this man who probably thought he deserved much honor and respect, but he sends a messenger to him to give him the instructions for the healing. We see the instructions were simply to go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and he says, and he promises that your flesh will be restored. Why does Elisha not greet him? Why does Elisha have him be healed in this manner? As I said before, we'll see this very soon as to why Elisha acted in this manner. But first we see Naaman's response to the instruction. So when Elisha sent the messenger, what was, Eli- what was Naaman's response? We see he was furious. Maybe first off because of his pride. He, it was probably hurt in the sense that he expected honor as the commander of the Syrian army. But also, we see that he may have been furious in the sense that what he expected to happen, what he expected, how he expected to be healed, did not happen at all. He expected a quick and powerful healing where the prophet came to him and called on his name, called on this God's name to heal him. Naaman turns to the method given and he believes that the waters of Damascus would heal him or be better for him much more than the Jordan River. If it were up to Naaman, he would have left and raged and went back to Syria with no healing. But his servants got in the way of that. They explained that this instruction from Elisha was certainly simple, but it was great. Elisha promised that he would be healed. So surely Naaman, he listens to their direction, and he is healed, so much so that his skin is restored to a child's skin. What will Naaman's response be to this healing? Let's look at verses 15 through 16, which give us his response. Verse 15 says, Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him, and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. So after Naaman was healed, we could have expected, I would say, several different reactions from this man who was probably quite prideful, kind of stuck on himself being this commander, this great commander of Syria. So we could have maybe expected he may have just been indifferent. 
All right, he got healed and he went back to Syria with no really response or reaction at all. Maybe another response that we may have um, assumed he could have had is maybe he went back to the prophet Elisha and thanked him just to stay in good terms with Israel. All right, he thanked him for what he did just to, so no war would come about. But what we see in this passage, his response, we see his response is one of transformation and great belief in the one true God. He realizes that it was only by God's power that he was healed. And he extends that understanding and realizes that this is the only God. There is no other God but this God who healed him. Naaman's response is one of acknowledgement, recognition, and awareness of God and how he worked. Now here we get our answers as to why Elisha kind of conducted this healing in the way in which he did. Naaman offers a gift, likely just to thank the human uh, worker, even though he realized God was the one that worked this great miracle. And we see he offers a gift, maybe like the gift or the same gift he offered in verse 5 to Elisha. Elisha, his response is he refuses. After much urging, he says, as the Lord lives, before whom I stand, I will receive none. So he refuses this gift. Elisha gives all the credit to God. So the reason he refused this gift was not because he didn't need it, but it was simply to show the point that God deserved the credit for such a miracle. He explains that it is because he serves God and God is the one in which worked this great miracle and deserves all the credit. He would not receive the gift. I do believe that Naaman was sincerely offering the gift, not because he thought Elisha performed this miracle, but just out of thanks for his working and allowing God to work through him. Elisha's response to this gift shows why he said back in verse 8, let him come now so that he might know so that he might know that there is a prophet in Israel. All right, this might have looked like prideful words or um, self-promoting words by Elisha, but we see that the reason he said that was to give God the credit that God would be honored. And also we see why he wouldn't go out to Naaman to heal him. Some believe Elisha was in retirement. Some believe that he was just trying to test Naaman here, which could have been part of it. But I believe the main reason that he didn't go out to Naaman to heal him was so that Naaman would realize that it was God who did this work. So we see Elisha in his service to God sought to acknowledge God and was aware that he was at work within this situation. The next part of the story furthers Naaman's response to the healing, showing further his intentions and his commitments to the Lord. Look with me at verses 17 through 19. They say, Then Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. From now on your servant will not offer burnt offerings or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant when my master goes into the house of Rimon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimon, when I bow myself in the house, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. He said to him, go in peace. So it is a known custom back in the day, um, back in ancient times, for people to use the land as an altar. So Naaman he must have believed that he had to do this to fully worship 
Elisha's God. Certainly this was not needed, but it showed that Naaman not only acknowledged God but, or recognized him, but he believed truly in this God, so much so that he had faith and he wanted to worship this God in his home country where no one else was worshiping the God of Israel. But before Naaman can do this, he asks one more thing for a pass in that he feels he must continue to go through the worship of the Syrian God, Rimon. Rimon was the God of rain and thunder, and Naaman may have had to go through ritual worship sessions, maybe similar to a story in the Bible or a time in Israel's history that we know of in Israel's exilement. We think of the book of Daniel with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and we think of them as they had to participate in this idol worship in Babylon. It may have been a similar situation in, in the sense that the king called all of his men, all of his servants, to worship. Maybe Naaman was going through something similar to that. Well, Elisha tells him to go in peace, and here we must observe that Elisha's not necessarily making this acceptable, not saying it's okay for him to do this. He does not justify his acts, but sends him off. We must also observe that Naaman, most likely, he probably knew very little about the God of Israel. He probably didn't know about all the commandments, all the laws of Israel. So, uh, in a sense, he was ignorant of these laws. He was not able to know them. So, in him asking this, he may not have realized the one true God's expectations and commandments. So ultimately, I think what we need to observe about all, above all else here is that Naaman's life was changed. He is now seeking to acknowledge and also worship God in a culture, in a country that did not war- worship the God of Israel. Let's move on to verses 19 through 20. They say, or the second half of 19 going into 20, it says, But when Naaman had gone from him a short distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, See, my master has spared this Naaman the Syrian, and not accepting from his hand what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So we see that Naaman leaves, heading back to Syria, and onto the scene comes a character we have not or a person we had not heard about yet, Elisha's servant, Gehazi. And he, he appeared in several chapters before this one with Elisha, so uh, it's not the first time he's on the scene in the book of 2 Kings, but in our story it is. And we see Gehazi acts out of greed, self-care, and not worried about God and his work that he had done. He runs after Naaman, seeking to get some of the gifts for himself. In verses 21 through 24, it says, So Gehazi followed Naaman, and when Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? And he said, All is well. My master has sent me to say, There have just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim, two young men of the sons of the prophets. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothes. And Naaman said, Be pleased to accept two talents. And he urged him and tied up two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of clothing. And he laid them on two of his servants and they carried them before Gehazi. And when he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and put them in the house and he sent the men away and they departed. So we see here Gehazi presented a lie to Naaman saying that two visitors had come to Elisha and were in need 
So that is the reason he gives for needing this talent of silver and these two changes of clothes. But Naaman, he's very generous and he offers him two talents of silver and two changes of clothes. So he is fooled by Gehazi's lie. So Naaman sent his servants with him to deliver it and Gehazi made sure that they didn't go too far so that Elijah wouldn't see them or notice them and realize what his servant had done. We see two more contrasts as we kind of look back at a few character contrasts. Um, earlier in the story, we have two more shown to us now, and it's between the servant Gehazi and Naaman and the servant and Elisha. And we see between Naaman and the servant, we see Naaman was in a place where he did not know God and was prideful when he came to a knowledge of him through the healing of his leprosy. And we see Gehazi. He obviously served Elisha before and knew of this God, but he was unworried of God and his purposes, and he was stuck on himself. We see with Elisha and Gehazi that in Elisha's response to the gifts, he rejects them. He refuses them for the purpose to give God the credit. But we see with Gehazi, all he is worried about is furthering himself. He is seeking to be selfish in getting these gifts, and he had no care for how, for uh, for showing that God deserved the credit. So our passage closes with Gehazi's curse in verses 25 through 27. Look with me there. It says in verse 25, he went in and stood before his master and Elisha said to him, where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, your servant went nowhere. But he said to him, did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Was it a time to accept money and garments, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants? Therefore the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence a leper like snow. So when Gehazi, he returned to Elisha, Elisha confronted him. He confronted his servant, and the servant tried to lie his way out of it. God allowed Elisha to be able to realize what had gone on with his servant in this lie. All right, Elisha knew the truth, and he questions him with this question. To repeat it, he said, Was it a time to accept money and garments, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants? So in other words, Elisha's asking him, Was this a time to accept gifts of a man who had just been healed and acknowledged God? Was this a time to allow your selfish tendencies to get in the way of God and his work? For what he did, Gehazi and his family were cursed. The leprosy of Naaman was stuck on or given to this servant. So in light of this story, we may ask, what can we learn from 2 Kings chapter 5? I believe the thing that we need to take away from this story primarily is that we are to be aware and acknowledge God at work in our lives. So this point kind of manifests itself out in two points. So first, take notice that we are to see God at work. See God in his work. And if we look back at 2 Kings 5 verse 1, it said, Naaman, a commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him, the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. So we see that God 
had given Naaman victory for his purposes. Even though we do not know exactly why he would work this out in Syria's history, uh, we can certainly see that he was involved and active in what happened in these wars. Secondly, we see God at work in this story in 2 Kings 5.2. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. So certainly, this is very tragic. This is an awful thing that happened, that this girl was captured from Israel and brought away, most likely from her family, to be, with, to be a servant of this Syrian couple. But we see how God placed her there for at least the purpose of directing Naaman, a man who may have never had contact with God or any knowledge of God if it weren't for her. We see God working his purposes out in that way. And thirdly, we see how God was at work in this story, even in the cure of Naaman and the curse of the servant of Elisha. We see that God was at work in the healing of Naaman from his leprosy and also healing him spiritually by allowing him to see him, to have a knowledge of him. We are to realize the same thing with our lives. God is surely at work, even if we don't realize it or even see it, we are to know that he is. Surely Naaman wouldn't have realized that God had given him victory back when it happened. So from this first point, that we are to see God at work, I think this is a point that many of us here would certainly accept. We'd say we believe. But I think often in our everyday lives, we brush it off. It's something that we don't necessarily think about, that God is at work. He's involved. He's in control. He's sovereignly over all things. I think it's something that we often maybe take for granted. We push off. And we don't necessarily think about how God is at work in this certain situation. Let's look at the second point. The second thing that we can get from this passage is, for, is what we can take away is our response. What is our response to be to a God who is at vo- involved and at work, active and sovereign? I think to see this, let's look back over the characters that we looked at in this story. First, let's look at, I'd say, the most prominent throughout, Naaman. We see Naaman's response to a sovereign God who is at work in his healing of leprosy. Naaman had been a man of pride and lacked a knowledge of the one true God. But God worked in his life and healed him, and Naaman acknowledged God. But not only that, but he believed in him and sought to worship him. So this is a response that I think many of us certainly have had. We know God, but I think Possibly some of us have not ever had this response to God. We often use the terminology, a saving knowledge of God, in which you place your faith in God. We know even more about God than both Naaman and Elisha did back in that day in the sense that we know of God's Son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross so that we could have this knowledge of God, so that we could be saved from our sins. So to know God in this way, It is not by our works. It is not by anything found in us that we can have this relationship of knowing God, but it is simply through his grace and through trusting him. I think Romans 10, 9 through 10 puts it nicely when it says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So if you don't know God, but you want to. You want to know God like Naaman did. 
You need to believe in him. Let's look at the second character. So we've looked at Naaman. Let's look at the little girl. See how she acknowledged or what her response to God was. We see that she may not have known too much about this God. She may not have known much about this prophet, but she certainly acknowledged God. She believed in his power through the prophet Elisha and shared that with her masters. All you who are Christians, maybe a new Christian or maybe you've been a Christian for years, are you willing to acknowledge God within your own life? To share how he works powerfully, to speak of him to others and to share their need for him. The third character, thinking about the king of Israel. He didn't even recognize that God could work through Elisha. He didn't even come to his mind. The king was certainly aware of God, and he most likely knew Elisha as well. May we have God on our thoughts and in our minds always so that we are aware of his workings and to be able to direct others to him. Last two characters, Elisha. We think of how Elisha acknowledged God in that he expected him to work and gave him the credit for the miracle. In places of service and opportunities to minister to others, realize that God is the one who is working. God is the one who is at work. He is at work in every situation. May we humble ourselves and give the credit to God like Elisha did. And lastly, we think of Elisha's servant, Gehazi. He saw the healing that took place and the transformation of Naaman and his newfound knowledge of God and his response, his response that he wasn't interested in serving God. He wasn't interested in God's purposes, but he was only interested in his own cares, his own desires. May our desires not overtake our knowledge of God and his purposes. May they coincide and not conflict with God's. So in response to 2 Kings chapter 5, may we be aware of and acknowledge God at work in our own lives. If you've never placed your faith in God so that you might know him and have a relationship with him, you can do that this very day. For those that know God and may have, have had a relationship with God for many years, some examples may be either in your job having conversations about God with our co-workers. If it be at school or in college, having God on your mind while you're learning, while you're taking a test, thinking about his presence, his attributes, and how he works. Even if it be in our decisions and plans, may we be aware of what God is doing and what his will is. And also in ministry, while we're serving, maybe on a committee or maybe here at church, May we, be a re- may we realize and acknowledge God's work in that ministry. So I leave you with this. Be aware and acknowledge God's work in your life. Let's pray together. Lord, we just thank you for this great story of Naaman and the work that you used um, in Elijah for this miracle to take place. God, we thank you for just the many characters as we see in this story, and we thank you for the truth of this story. Thank you for allowing it to happen. God, we just pray that we would come away now today in our everyday lives, in our lifestyle. May we realize who you are, Lord. May we recognize you and your work. And God, may we be aware and acknowledge you in our everyday lives. May you be on our minds. May you be in our conversations, in our talk with others. God, may we point out how you have been at work in our lives. 
God, we just thank you for being a God who is at work, who is sovereign, who is in control of all things. And may our response to you be one of acknowledgement, be one in which we are aware of your working and looking out for how you work. God, you are a good God, and you are a God that is in control. And we thank you for that. And in your name I pray. Amen.